0: If you'll turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. It is very typical for mankind to think of our sinfulness much less than we ought. Right? If we were to give uh, an honest assessment of our life, we are actually, oh, we have far more grace than we deserve. Our sin has gone so far into the world that even if we were honest with ourselves, we would be unaware of how much sinfulness is actually abounding in us. We're aware, I imagine, of such a small part of our own sinfulness um, because what really takes root in our memory is some of the good things we've done, isn't it? We have a much easier time remembering the good things that we do rather than the bad things we do, right? It's much easier to go, well, sure, I did some of those bad things, but you know, here's some good stuff. And to raise them up in our minds and in our memories, uh, almost to the point of even forgetting sometimes that our sin is ever nearby, Just like what was said to Cain in this children's story this morning, sin lies close by us, ready to easily entangle us, even as Christians, as the scriptures constantly remind us. It is so easy for us, I imagine, to think that our goodness is much greater than our evil, that we fool ourselves considerably. And Jesus, in today's passage, speaks to a group of people that had completely forgotten their own sinfulness in light of their goodness. Their goodness, supposedly, or their belongingness, their identity, completely outshadowed their own sinfulness. And so Jesus comes in and shatters their hope, and I hope to do the same thing to anyone else who is denying their sins, uh, including Christians. This is one of the reasons why when we come together, we communally confess our sins, we repent of our sins, to turn back. Not because we only do that on Sunday mornings, it's because we are to do that at all points. Christians live, as it has been said throughout church history, Christians live a life of repentance. We continually turn ourselves back to the Lord because we know our tendency to front our goodness and our own selves to say, well, look at me. I'm a member of this church, or I have given such a so of this, or I've helped this person or that person. Therefore, that kind of, you know, overshadows some of the sins in my life. And yet in salvation, we know that our relationship to our sin is not that we can fix it in any means whatsoever. Even by doing good works does not fix our sin, not in the least. Church membership won't fix sin. Promising to do better tomorrow won't fix your sin. Confession and repentance and faith in Christ does. And so when we come together, it shouldn't surprise us that we confess our sins communally. We repent of them. We enjoy the joy of salvation found only at Christ because we do not find such salvation anywhere else the group that Jesus is speaking to thought they did not have a problem. They were children of Abraham. They were people of Israel. What need have they of a Savior? This is where they were at, and this is where I want to pick up the text, because as we have continually gone through John chapter 8, we're reminded of this reality that Unless you come to Christ, you will die in your sins. In fact, that was the title of one of the previous messages. You will die in your sins. Because there's only two ways to perish in this world, either to die in Christ or to die in your sins. And Christ makes no apology about this message. He, he expresses it to us directly. He says it to us clearly over and over and over and over again. And here at the end of the last passage we were in, there was many that supposedly believed in him. And that's where we pick up our passage is John chapter 8. We're going to do verses 31 through 47. I know that is a long passage, uh, but you will see why. It's kind of an unbroken thought, and we will go through it. So I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God and his word. John chapter 8, verses 31 through 47. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son, he remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him and said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were indeed Abraham's children... You would be doing the works that Abraham did. So now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God, and the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Our Father, we pray for this passage, its truth. We pray, Father, that we do not just merely understand what is here, though that is complicated in and of itself. We pray that we love what is here. We pray that we would desire that in each other, that we would together love what your word says, applying it to our lives, our homes. Father, to not change the word that you have sent, but instead, to give it out and entrust to you this the outcomes and the results. We pray, Father, this day that what is found in each of us is ears to hear. The message of the gospel we pray that what is found in each and every one of us is that we hear the words of christ love them delight in them and find in them your very words father may it not be said of any of us that we do not hear because we are not of god and thus we pray for salvation to those here and to those outside We pray this in your son's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. A very complicated passage, no doubt, and one that brings into its consideration most of the themes that have been going on in the book of John. John, as you well know, is written that we, the readers, may believe and have life, that we may actually find life in Jesus' name, We find in him a salvation that we cannot find anywhere else because there is salvation in no other name. There is truth nowhere else. Every time we find truth in this world, we are to thank God for it. I don't care where you found it, archaeology, science, astronomy, genetics, uh, a book of fiction... Even to find it in law codes and in cultures, anywhere we find truth, be grateful for that. That's a remarkable thing because truth does not exist outside of God. And what, what, one of the things that Jesus expresses here is that the reality is these people were banking on the reality that they were descendants of Abraham. They were Jewish people by birth. And so what they had in their pride was this idea that, yes, we are indeed children of Abraham, and if Jesus wants to come in and add some stuff to it, fine, we'll, you know, we'll believe him, I suppose. He wants to give us good things, we can make him an addendum to our life. I fear many, many people, and there's good biblical warrant for this, many people who consider themselves Christians are not They have seen Christ as an addendum to their life, not the source of life itself. And what these Jews were saying as they were believing in him, even temporarily, what Christ says back to them is that the real test as to whether or not they are his disciples is if they abide in his word. It is not whether or not you agree with this for a time or for a bit It is, you will abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. That's how Jesus talks to them. Verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Most of you will be familiar with the parable of the soils. The parable of the soils has four different examples. When the word of God is preached to the heart of those with the rocky soil, these are those who hear the word of God and it does nothing to them. The birds come and they eat the, the seed that was scattered in their hearts. The evil one plucks it away. It's over. There's others that had seeds sown into the soil that is rocky. And these seeds find quick germination. But just like a crop that doesn't have properly tilled soil, it'll grow up quick, but then it withers away because there's no solid root of it. This is also not a Christian. There's others that were sown among thorny soils, correct? The seed finds germination, it plants, the Word of God changes things in their life, but then the cares and the worries of this world choke out the Word of God in their life, and instead they are defined only by their circumstances, and they end up forgetting Christ. This is not the description of a Christian either. The only description of a Christian that we find in the parable of the soils is the seed that fell among good soil. And the seed germinated, and it grew up, and there's all sorts of variation here. Some bearing 30-fold, some bearing 60, some bearing 100-fold. But all of them bear fruit with patience. It means the word of God is strong enough to change even the lives of unbelievers for a time. And so Jesus says, you want to know whether you are truly my disciple. You have to look outside just the current moment. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. It has to be a word that continues on through the cares and the frustrations of life. It has to be a word that carries on past the emotional high of finding learning of the truth. The Christian life is not a matter of reaching a plateau of emotional satisfaction with God and just riding that throughout your life. No, it is a roller coaster of difficulties, of frustrations, of high points and low, enjoyments. One day is great, the next day crashes to the ground, back up again, back down again. The one who endures to the end is saved. And what Jesus says here is the very same thing. If you abide in my word, then you will truly know that you are my disciples. That will be the good soil. Not the thorny soil, the rocky, or any of these others. Or not even the seed that was scattered on the path. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Who is the truth? And what are you set free from? Christ himself will go on to identify himself as the truth, the way, even the life itself. Capital T, capital W, capital L. These these are titles of Christ. Christ. This isn't like you just go out and say to somebody who's lying to you, you go, ah, well, the truth will set you free. That's not the application of this verse. The application of this verse is you are enslaved to sin, and Christ can set you free. You want to know the truth about mankind's situation. It is not that we have a problem called sin. It is that sin has in its crosshairs our very lives. It lies close beside us and it will envelop us and it will destroy us. And Christ says, if you know my word, you hear my word, you abide in my word and are truly my disciples, then you will know the truth, the truth of what sin is, the truth of who Christ is, the truth of salvation and you will be set free You will be set free. Their answer, these people who believed in Christ only for a short time, said, We are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you will say, We will be set free? The real frustration to hear the responses to Jesus' message is to see how many people are actually blind to their own sinfulness. They're even blind to their own history. These people are even blind to their own situation. Let's put it the way it goes on. We are all of us slaves of sin. Without Christ, we have no hope of overcoming sin. It is far more powerful than you or I. Sin is far more powerful than anything else in the universe outside of God. It was more powerful than several of the angels It was more powerful than Adam and Eve. Innocent humans living in full communion with God Almighty still could not resist sin but for a time. Sin will destroy us. We are slaves of it should we give to it. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying is there's only one name and one person that can actually set us free from that slavery. It doesn't mean that as we go out, as some people teach, that as we become Christians, then we have no more sin in our life. No, quite the contrary. We see how much sin has been in our life. And the closer to Christ we get, the more sin we see is in our life. All through. So much so that Paul says of his own view of himself, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst Every Christian should have that perspective. Christ Jesus came in to save sinners, and I'm the worst. Because the log that's in my eye fills my vision so much that I can barely pay attention to the sins of others. And we become grateful because of what God has saved that he has been gracious towards us and we walk humbly with him, not saying, well, it's a good thing that Christ saved me. I have a lot to offer to his kingdom, my friend. He had infinite worth given to you. If you need it as a reminder, put it on a wall, put it on a pillow. Christ Jesus came into the, sa- into the world to save sinners of which I am the worst. Sleep on it. Memorize it. Remember it. Breathe it. Live it. And let the humility of following Christ enwrap your soul. Because these people know nothing of this. They are sitting there speaking with the creator of the universe, saying, we've never been enslaved to anyone. And he's saying, you're slaves to sin. Anyone anyone who sins is a slave to sin. It's because it's violating what you were created to be. Sin is death. You were created for life. And how ludicrous for somebody who's a Jewish person to say we've never been enslaved to anyone. I can think of five off the top of my head. Egypt, Mesopotamia, Babylon, Persia, Romans. We can toss the Greeks on top of that. They were enslaved to people the very day that they were talking to him. The Romans were occupying their country as a foreign force that had taken their country from the hands of the Greeks, who had taken it from the hands of the Persians, who had taken it from the hands of the Babylonians, who had taken it from the hands of the Assyrians, who had taken it from their hands back 800 years before. They haven't been free for the vast majority of the time they've been a people. And they had the audacity to say to him, We are offspring of Abraham. They look back to a time where Abraham, as a nomad, was free. He didn't even have a specific place to live, a specific homeland. He looked forward to a city whose builder and maker was God, and because of that great faith, lived in tents and refused to build a house. Remarkable stuff. Abraham's awesome. He had his own problems here, but they wanted to bank on that. We're his descendants, and so we can ride in on his coattails. Kids, take note. You are not a Christian just because your parents are Christians. They said, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? And Jesus answers them and says, truly, truly, I say to you, you want to know where your slaving is? Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And you think you're doing well because you're living in the house. Slaves live in the house. But not Forever. Son lives in the house forever, but not the slave. Verse 36 And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, look at this picture of what he's doing. He's mixing all the metaphors and pulling them together to show them their need of salvation. Christ is saying to them, You think you're free. That in and of itself shows you don't even have the perspective to know the issue. You are slaves of sin. They say, well, we're living in the house. We're children of Abraham. Yeah, slaves live in the house for a while, but they don't inherit the promises. Don't judge the blessing of God by circumstances. Base it on the promises of God. Christian, the same falls to us. Times of goodness happen in our lives. We think we were owed that. Times of great suffering enter our lives and we, then we start asking why. why. Try flipping that. When times of goodness enter your life, try asking why. Why I don't deserve this. I don't deserve times of ease. I don't deserve comfort. And then when times of difficulty comes, try the other. Yeah, that sounds about right. It is one of the aspects that betrays the heart is the way that we approach our circumstances. We pass through something difficult or we endure something that's permanently difficult for the rest of our lives. What Christ is focusing them on says, you want to know if you're truly my disciples, your heart will have my word abiding into it throughout It won't just be a word that's used when times are good or when times are bad, something to just encourage or something to just refute. No, it will be the driving force of all that you are. He says, you want to know how enveloping this is? Just look at your sin. When times are difficult in your life, if you're not aware, the propensity for sin goes way up things are going wrong in your career or things are going wrong in your home, the tendency towards sin greatly increases. Be on alert. Be aware. Have the word of Christ dwell in you richly, even more so when times of difficulty come. But when times of ease come, yet another problem in our hearts takes place. We don't think we know God or need him. This is what the wisdom of the prophet Agar wrote in the end of the book of Proverbs, where he says, Father, feed me with the food that is my portion. Don't make me full, lest I forget your name. And don't make me have no bread, lest I steal and profane your name. Feed me with the food that is my portion. That was his prayer. A remarkable prayer, because it speaks of the reality that I have this propensity to sin in so many different areas of life, whether things are great and overwhelming or whether things are in famine. I depend on God for all these things. Don't give me too much goodness and don't give me too much evil. Let me ride that line so that on some level I can just cruise through this. But the reality of life is some days are great and some days are horrible. And the one who calls on the name of the Lord in the midst of it all will truly be saved. This is what Jesus is saying to them. He says, you think you're so great because you're children of Abraham. Let me tell you how terrible it is. Have you sinned? Do you sin without end? Are you enslaved to it? As we look at our lives, we go, well, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I don't uh, drink or smoke or chew or uh, you know, go along with those who do, right? Right? That's how it used to be. (laughs) We just emulated the sin that enwraps everything. That's called pride. The answer to sin is not inside yourself. The answer to sin is not inside another Christian holding you accountable. The answer to sin is Christ, his word dwelling in us richly. Here he says it to them, anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, and they're sitting here saying we haven't been slave to anything. How can you say we're going to become free? He's like, you're all slaves to sin. I know your sin. The slave doesn't live in the house forever. The son remains forever, and so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And Jesus answered them and says, "I know that you are offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me." Abraham's God. How does that make any sense? You seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. And it betrays who you are. You think you can ride on the coattails of being descendants of Abraham. And the he says, I am the God of Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am, he will say here shortly. To remind them of the reality that if you think you are true descendants of Abraham and yet you're not hearing my words, it betrays your claim. It betrays your claim. You're putting your hope on something that disappoints. You cannot place your hope on being a descendant of Abraham. Even in the modern church we have issues. Children, you cannot place your hope on your parents being Christians and you going to church. I've known hundreds of people I grew up with that grew up in church, their parents went to church, they knew the gospel, and then when they grew up, they left Christ. I only know of two of my childhood friends that even still darken the door of a church today. I knew hundreds. What Jesus says to them, I know you are offspring of Abraham, yet you betray your claim by how you interact with Christ. They are seeking to kill him. Why? Because his words find no place to dwell in them. When we encourage one another, by the words of scripture, to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, let me encourage you with these words. The word of Christ, the gospel of the kingdom of God, his intention to save those who call on his name for salvation should delight the Christian's heart no matter his circumstance. Sure, there are times where it is obscured by our vision and our suffering. But we will surely see the Lord, my friends. And I pray that the word of Christ finds home in each one of us because what Christ says, he has Spoken only because of what he has seen in the Father. And then he speaks to this group of people and says, You only do what you have heard from your Father. There are two fathers mentioned here one is God through Christ, the other is the devil by name. And they are saying there's a third route, Abraham. And Jesus says, there isn't a third route. Abraham will not save you. Abraham will not get you into my grace. Abraham will not bring you into fellowship with the Father. And it is evidenced by the fact that you cannot bear the words of Christ. So they scream at him. Abraham is our father. You say God is your father. And you say we do the works that is of our father. And they scream back at him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were indeed Abraham's children, if you were indeed his children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. Should send you straight back to the book of Genesis. What did Abraham do? What is the statement that is most significant about Abraham's entire life? Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him as righteousness. And his life was lived out of that. He wouldn't even keep his own son from the father. Why? Because this is more significant than family relations. He wouldn't even build a house because he knew that there was a promise of God that he was going to establish a permanent dwelling. And he refused, the book of Hebrews says, He refused to build a house so that he would not forget the eternal promise of God. Now, we would call this guy out of his mind today. Imagine this. He just lives in a tent in the woods, surrounded by sheep and goats, and says, God has fit for us an eternal dwelling, and I don't want to miss the focus on that. I'll just live in a tent. The scriptures say that he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. And so Jesus says to them, if you were indeed Abraham's children, in other words, if you follow in his example, then you would be doing the works that Abraham did, but now you're seeking to kill me. Abraham fed me. Before I sent the angels down to Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham prepared a young goat for me. You're seeking to kill me. Abraham believed me when I told him a promise of a son yet to come. You are slaves and you're ignoring the son who's standing in front of you. The son that Abraham's son was simply set to show you the promise that one day Jesus would come into this world. And he says, look, if you truly were the children of Abraham, you'd be doing his works. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. That's some rough language. And so he turns the screws to them. Verse 41 You are doing the works your real father did. They said to him, We are not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. The Revealer of Hearts. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word your father is the devil now for those of us who have a milk toast view of Jesus this is probably a very surprising passage to be reading Jesus is typically um, portrayed as a uh, kind-hearted quiet sitting off in the corner introspective kind of guy Um, that's not what we're reading here He's literally standing in the temple mount calling out to the dwellers of Jerusalem and calling them descendants of the snake in the garden. Calling them descendants of the one who accused Job and caused all of his ill. All that woe. All the fallenness of the world. You, not only are broods of vipers, you are of your father the devil. And the reason why you cannot hear my words is because you cannot bear the truth because you love lies. That's dangerous language. And what he is saying to them is, if you think that you are living in accordance with Abraham, let me tell you what Abraham did. Nothing like you. How many of us share the gospel this way? Verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. By the way, that is the expression here. There's two fathers. Abraham's not one of them. There's God and there's the devil. And he says, the desires of your heart will reveal who your father is. And the reason they cannot bear to hear his word is because his words are true. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. And I said, that's a little strange. I don't remember the devil actually murdering anyone anywhere that we're told about. Do you what's Jesus referring to? He was a murderer from the beginning. That gives us the time frame. yes. say that again deer oh for the oh for the um for the skins. we don't know what it was, but uh I would imagine a sheep. Nope, goes back a little bit before that, yes, sir. It's a remarkable thing, though, isn't it? It reminds us that what the devil has done is to bring about death into this world. What brings death? Is death natural for us? Was it part of the original design? Nope. Sin. He's taking us right back to the fall and saying, you think you're the one that was wronged. You are the one doing the wrong. He is framing their discussion with him as second Adam and them as second devil. That is powerful language. And so what he's saying is, you think you're on the other side, and it's flipped. He's like, I'm God. If you're not for me, you're on the wrong side. I'm the only one through whom life comes. I'm the only truth that there is. And if you're thinking that you're going to define it outside of me somehow, you're going to leapfrog past Christ and find your way to the Father, you will not. There's nobody that goes to the Father except through me, as he's about to explain. He says, all of this shows that unless you see the Son, and unless He sets you free there is no life in you at all. And in fact, you show yourself to be bent towards death. It is what he means when he says he is not just the way and the truth, he is also life. We cannot live without him. He says, Your will is to do your father's desires. And you say, Wow, that's really powerful language. I'm glad I'm not standing in that crowd. We are. That's what John is showing us. Without Christ, every single one of us is standing in that crowd doing our father, the devil's, will. And our slave to sin and our slavery to do that will that is aberrant from the Father will take us over. John is showing his readers, that's you and me, outside of Christ, We are of our father, the devil, and we will just do his will because that is what happens. You do the will of your father. Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning. This is your will to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. That's why you look like this. That's why you're sinning like this. That's why you hate the words of Christ. That's why you hate what he says and have to change it or reinterpret it or morph it around or take it, pick and choose. No, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. And then he turns it around to him in only a way that Jesus of Nazareth could try to convict me of sin. Now, Jesus is the only person of all of history after Adam and Eve to experience being a human without sin. And so he says directly to them, find a sin. You want to say I'm on the wrong side and you're on the right side? I just told you we're on opposite sides. Now try to find a sin in me to find a sin which of you can convict me of a single sin you want to tell me I'm on the wrong side and you're on the right side because you're children of Abraham I'll tell you what the one who sins is slave to sin you know you sin try to find one in me it is a it is a tantalizing thing that he says here which one of you convicts me of sin if I tell you the truth why would you not believe me You can't find sin in me, you can't find error in my words, and yet you're trying to kill me. Why do you think you don't believe me? You have banked every hope on being a descendant of Abraham, and here you sit, you don't even know Abraham's God. That is a warning to every single person that considers themselves a Christian. How do you interact with the words of Christ? How do you interact with his word? When the word of God comes and speaks to you, do you listen or do you only listen when it agrees with you? Does it challenge us or do you challenge it? Do you come to the word of God as a servant or as judge and jury? Do you come to the word of God hoping to be filled with something you don't have, or do you come to the Word of God to back up what you already think? Do you see the two different ways? The Word of God is not to be received with closed hands. It is to be received with open and grateful hands. Now, all of us will die with errors. All of us will die misunderstanding things in the scriptures, no matter how much we try to fix it. It's not about being right. And this I say to all my friends who love theology, myself included. It's not about being right, it's about approaching God on His terms and submitting to Him. And when He says something, that's the end of it. When He speaks wisdom, it's better than ours. No matter how much we think we understand outside, When he speaks, we listen. We receive it into our hearts, not just for a time. Because it is the endurance of the saints that reveals their hearts. You can only fake belonging to Christ for so long. Especially as times get difficult. And so I will say this. When times of difficulty come, I am actually thankful for them. Because they reveal where my heart truly is. They reveal whether I am grateful to God in all circumstances or just in good ones. They reveal whether the word of God is sufficient for me in times of ease or also in times of grave difficulty. I would encourage you to think about that way. And maybe we don't quickly pray that God will alleviate our suffering and our pain, but instead cause us to be grateful and to thank him in the midst of it that we would see his world from his perspective. I pray for all of us that God's word abides in our hearts clearly and freely that we endure to the end and demonstrate that we are truly his disciples. John includes this as a warning and as an encouragement. And I mean it as both. If your claim to following Christ is simply that of temporal issues and not one of eternal confidence in the Son of God to save you to the uttermost, may I encourage you, Christ is a much greater Savior than you or I know. And he is worthy of all that confidence. Place it in him. And do not lose sight of him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed grateful. Your word is constantly at work in us. We pray that it abides in us richly. That the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And that we set our feet not on sinking sand, which is some other word. But Father, the words of Christ become for us rock on which we stand. Build our house establish our hearts, and settle our fellowship. Father, we pray that the peace of Christ would fill us, would delight us, would challenge us, and at the end of all of this, that it would reveal our hearts to have abided with Christ through thick and thin Teach us, Father, what it means to be his disciples in the midst of this crooked generation. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for times of difficulty. And we thank you for times of ease. We pray that both we would find your word dwelling richly within us, abiding in Christ no matter what comes. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Wow.